I was at lunch after church last week when it was brought to my attention that this Sunday would be Mother's Day. Um, but then I learned during the week that actually in the Netherlands, where I'm from, it isn't. It's not Mother's Day over there. Um, so I was going to say, hi, mom, because she's watching, I think, through Zoom. Um, I still will. Hello, mom. <laughs> I'll be with you very soon. Let's do something fun together then. Um, when it is Mother's Day in the Netherlands on the 8th of May, I'll be back here. So, yeah, best do it when I'm there. All right. So we're in a series on the book of Ezra. Um, and today we're going to start reading in chapter 6 from verse 13. Let's see if this works. Yes. No, that's the one from last week. Um, so last week, um, as you just saw, um, the topic was overcoming opposition, um, and it ended with a note of overcoming opposition. The work of the temple, of building the temple, had been stopped for a moment, um, a while actually, but it ended with a decree from the king that work on um, the temple could recommence. And that's where we pick it up, Ezra 6, starting at verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethard Bozanai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So at the very beginning of this series, it was mentioned that this story running through Ezra and Nehemiah would have some highs and lows. And this is certainly one of its high points. So far, the book of Ezra has been all about the return of the people from exile and the reconstruction of the temple. Here's a quick recap. Hopefully. Nope. Yes, there it is. 
So they started by rebuilding the altar and offering burnt offerings there. Then the foundations of the temple were laid and the people started construction. The building was in full swing, but after a letter to the king and his response, it came to a halt. Again, Aaron preached on this last week. The building of the temple was met with opposition. But after a few years, it got restarted again. Another decree from another king came, and this time favorably. So work on the temple resumed and was supported. And about four and a half years later, finally, the temple is done. And the people celebrated its dedication by offering several hundreds of animals. It was a small sacrifice when compared to that that King Solomon offered when he had completed his temple. He sacrificed some 200 times more than the people did now. After their exile, the people are spiritually and economically impoverished. But they make a very intentional effort to recommence their worship. And they gave of what they had. And his worship came with cleansing too. One animal sacrificed for every tribe of Israel as a sin offering. For a long time, the people could not be cleansed of their sin in the way that they were supposed to. So some commentators say this sin offering may have been intended to cleanse them of all the sin committed during their exile. And also to decontaminate the temple from any impurity brought upon it during its construction. And these events and offerings were not just ceremony, it was a great celebration. So, what did the people celebrate? Next slide. In part, of course, they were glad the work was done. We've run through the construction story quite quickly, but it has taken the people some 20 years to build this temple. When we have completed a big task, there is this moment of relief and celebration. We celebrate when we have completed a task and we think we've done well. Or at least we're glad that it's behind us now. Then the completion and rededication of the temple meant that the people could finally worship God again. In the way that they were supposed to, like I said. And in the way that some of them still knew, but couldn't because of the exile. The celebration offering wasn't as great as Solomon's was, but... It was there. The temple was there and it was theirs again. And this one would last them for over 500 years. Thank you. But most importantly, the dedication of the temple was a celebration of God's faithfulness to the people. Faithfulness to bring them back from exile and sustain them through the work. It was God who stirred up their hearts to do it. Yes, the work had been interrupted, and met with opposition, and at some point the people got disheartened, and the work was suspended for several years. But then, it says earlier on, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to them in the name of the God of Israel, and it stirred the people up to start working on the, on the temple once again. Then there's God's faithfulness to prepare the way for them. It wasn't just their hearts that were stirred. The initial return from exile and the final push in the construction of the temple happened in part because God stirred the hearts of kings. And this compelled those kings to give the Israelites free passage and to provide them with what they needed to build and even to offer. And finally, God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. God is faithful to keep his word. 
in the book of Jeremiah, you can uh, find how it is foretold that the Israelites would go into exile. And that this would be something that took them a while. The situation would be like that for some 70 years. But eventually, God says they will be brought back and they will get to worship him again. And here they are. All this wrapped up in this celebration by the people. The temple being dedicated with joy and also the second feast, the Passover. This takes place a few weeks later, but it is likewise celebrated with joy. Finally, they get to have this celebration again after so many years. It's good to remember the Passover is in itself a celebration of God's faithfulness. It commemorates how the Lord brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of their slavery. Just imagine how it must have felt, this celebration in Ezra 6. Not only is it the first time in a long time, for many probably the first time in their lives that they could celebrate this, but it's celebrated in a sense a double deliverance. It is, in a way, a double testament to God's faithfulness. And speaking of testament, I do want to talk a bit about the New Testament today. In fairness, the temple we are reading about and focusing on in, this we in these weeks, it isn't there anymore nowadays, 2022. You might say history has caught up with this story. But actually, it's quite the opposite. This story in Ezra of the reconstruction of the temple has taken its place in a larger story of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel, spanning all the way back to the Exodus. And likewise, it has its place in an even greater story of God's faithfulness and redemption of mankind. I already mentioned this temple would remain for 500 years, over 500 years. It would be the center of worship in good times. It would also be defiled by idolatry and idol worship in other times. It would eventually get renovated and it remained at least as a symbol but also as a center of God's presence with his people. Now when God became flesh and dwelt among us, the temple was still there. If you're familiar with the Gospels, what comes to mind when you think of Jesus Christ and the temple. Jesus came into the temple a few times in his life, both as a child, a very young child, and as an adult. On one of these occasions during his ministry, he overturned tables and seats, causing quite a scene in there. On other times, he was teaching. Much had happened since the time of Ezra. The temple was now being renovated by Herod, and it was still being worked on. It was... Um, a very impressive building to see. It was overlaid with gold in such a way that it would hurt the eyes to look at when the sun was shining on it. Even the disciples were in awe and pointed out its magnificence to Jesus. Look at these buildings, they say at some point in the Gospels. Look at these great stones. And Jesus says, yeah, you see those? He predicts that not one stone will be left upon the other. When Jesus is put on trial, some try to get him convicted on false charges involving the temple, as if he was intending to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. Now, for all that Jesus says and does in the temple, 
I believe he's not filled with bitterness about it, but with sadness, for the way it has become a den of robbers, how it has refused to listen to the God who was supposed to be worshipped there. Let me ask again, what of these things is the most significant thing about Jesus and the temple for you? Is it when he overturned the tables, when he taught some of his tougher parables about hypocrisy right at the heart of contemporary religious practice? We can read those stories and go, go on, Rabbi, give it to him. Or is it when he died on the cross and the curtain in the temple was torn, top to bottom? That's what Jesus did in the end. To many, it I mean, it was quite the event when it happened, but might have gone back to the back of their minds again shortly after. There's a rabbi from Nazareth, yeah. He showed some promising signs and speeches. He was a very good speaker. But he died as a criminal and as a lowly slave. That's right. Afterwards, there were some people, some followers of his, who started spreading the word that he had risen from the grave. Weird and wonderful ideas they have. But hey, Jesus wasn't walking around Jerusalem anymore. It was still business and worship as usual in the temple. Until, of course, the year 70, when Jesus' words came to pass and the temple got destroyed. Why am I bringing all this up? I ended this on the note of the temple's destruction. But still... This is another story, and for us, a most crucial one, in the greater history of God's faithfulness. You see, way back at the beginning, before the Exodus even, in the Garden of Eden, humanity had fallen to sin. They had to leave the Garden because of it. But God foretold that there would be enmity between the serpent that had tempted them and humanity that had fallen for the temptation. The serpent would bruise humanity's heel, but someone, at some point, in the fullness of man, would come and crush the serpent's head. And God was faithful to that too. Through making covenants with humans and watching those covenants get broken by them, through all of Israel's history of devotion and defilement, faithfulness and unfaithfulness to him, God remained faithful. Jesus Christ conquered death. He overcame every temptation that was thrown at him. He overthrew the power of sin. And he rose from the grave. He truly crushed the serpent's head, as God said he would. So we've got God's faithfulness from the book of Ezra. Restoring the people from exile and helping them to finish the work on the temple. We've seen God's faithfulness in the coming of Jesus Christ and a redemption from sin and death. And still, it doesn't end there. The temple, the stone temple, was built, destructed, rebuilt, rededicated, renovated, destructed again. And with the rugged cross, the empty tomb, with Jesus now sitting at the right hand of the Father, and with the temple of Jerusalem as marker of the presence of God now gone. Where is the temple now?
or better, who is the temple now? Here's another chapter in the great story of God's faithfulness, one for us to celebrate. Let's go for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a group of Christians of mixed ethnic backgrounds. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he especially has some words from Gentile Christians, which includes most, if not all of us here. Verse 12 and 13. Remember that you were at one time separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And a bit further down from verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's a lot we could touch on from here. This whole chapter, indeed the epistle, is brimming with words about Jesus. It should be one of our favorites in a church called Christ First. In Christ, through Christ, by the blood of Christ, the mystery and riches of Christ, the love of Christ. Here's what happens. In him, in Christ, the Christians in Ephesus, and I'll say Christians everywhere, are part of a temple that is under construction. We are members of the household of God, which can only mean dwelling in there as well. And at the same time, we are being built together into a temple. If you know your epistles and um, you're not so big on the Apostle Paul, well, go to 1 Peter. You'll find a very similar language there. It says, like living stones, you, we, are being built up as a spiritual house. Friends, we are being built and becoming a holy temple for God. Now, that building process is no easy undertaking. It's lively and it is tricky. I was at the kids, kids club yesterday, yesterday morning, um, spending some time with some of the kids from the Afghan refugees. It was great. It was lively. We had toys and Play-Doh clay set on the table for them, but they didn't sit down at the table to play with it. They fumbled around with it and started taking it everywhere. They created shapes from that clay you've never heard of. They mashed colors together in combinations you wouldn't think were possible. They rubbed some of it in the carpet. <laughs> it was mayhem, as my good friend Phil would say. Now, imagine trying to build a building with living stones. 
That's the task that God has taken up. And it's a task he's faithful to complete. One of our LSE lecturers in uh, his book on exploring Christian doctrine writes, this is the ultimate master builder's nightmare. Working not with uniform bricks, which stay where they are put, but with disparate living stones with a mind of their own, obstinate and disobedient. And that's precisely what we are sometimes. Bricks that move about and wander off when we're not careful. And yet, God is working his way with bricks like us. We are being built together in Christ into a dwelling place for God himself by the Spirit. Will our master builder be able to finish this work, do you think? We've seen today in the book of Ezra that God is faithful to stir and sustain the Israelites as they build him a temple. That was his plan from the beginning, and he saw it through to completion. We remembered how in Jesus Christ, even with the stone temple standing by, God redeemed all his people from the power of sin and death. That was his plan and promise from the beginning. And he saw it through. And now we see how with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, in him, a structure is being brought together and built into a temple. The one in Ezra was built by human hands and overseen by God. This one, he's building himself. And he will see it through to completion. God is faithful to finish his work. That's true on an, on an individual level. The work that God is doing in your life and mine. And it is true on a corporate communal level. The master builder does not give up. The temple will be built. And she will be beautiful. Of course, how to be those living stones and live well. What it looks like to be joined together into one house into a dwelling place for God? That could be a sermon series in and of itself. And that shouldn't go without some deep personal reflection beforehand. But that's a topic for another time. And I've got a dissertation to finish <laughs> and a Hebrew exam to pass. In the midst of all that, to be honest with you, prayer and personal reflection is difficult enough as it is. But here's something to note as we come to a close. When the temple in the book of Ezra was completed, the Israelites celebrated its dedication and celebrated the Passover. The priests and the Levites prepared themselves accordingly for that. They were purified and clean. And we've spent some time today with the story of God's faithfulness to redeem us from our sin and certain death. Now, the final weeks of Lent are upon us. LSD will be having an Easter break after this week, so you may not see some of us around for a few weeks. But in those weeks, these next few weeks, Good Friday and Easter are coming. The 15th day of the fourth month. The resurrection of Christ, and first, the sacrifice of the Son of God, is something to remember with solemnity. And of course, it's reason to celebrate as well. To celebrate with joy 
Now, as we are approaching that time, how will you personally, how will I personally, how will we prepare ourselves for this moment? Maybe some deep personal reflection and prayer. I think that could be in order. Maybe with reconciliation with someone we have grievances with. Let's rededicate and recommit ourselves to be those living stones saved and redeemed through Jesus Christ. To be joined together into a holy temple, a place where God dwells. I wasn't sure how, how to end this, um, either by a prayer, a song, maybe just a time for being still and thinking for a moment about how we could prepare for that. I'll start with that then, and if you have any further ideas, please. Take it from there.